Section 13 of The Ego and His Own. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. The Ego and His Own by Max Stirner. Section 13. Political Liberalism, Part 2. Political liberty means that the polis, the state, is free. Freedom of religion, that religion is free, as freedom of conscience signifies that conscience is free. Not, therefore, that I am free from the state, from religion, from conscience, or that I am rid of them. It does not mean my liberty, but the liberty of a power that rules and subjugates me. It means that one of my despots, like state, religion, conscience, is free. State, religion, conscience, these despots, make me a slave, and their liberty is my slavery. That in this they necessarily follow the principle, the end hallows the means, is self-evident. If the welfare of the state is the end, war is a hallowed means. If justice is the state's end, homicide is a hallowed means, and is called by its sacred name execution. The sacred state hallows everything that is serviceable to it. Individual liberty over which civic liberalism keeps jealous watch, does not by any means signify a completely free self-determination by which actions become altogether mine, but only independence of persons. Individually free is he who is responsible to no man. Taken in this sense, and we are not allowed to understand it otherwise, not only the ruler is individually free, that is, irresponsible toward men, before God we know he acknowledges himself responsible, but all who are responsible only to the law. This kind of liberty was won through the revolutionary movement of the century, to wit, independence of arbitrary will, or tel est notre plaisir. Hence the constitutional prince must himself be stripped of all personality, deprived of all individual decision, that he may not as a person, as an individual man, violate the individual liberty of others. The personal will of the ruler has disappeared in the constitutional prince. It is with a right feeling, therefore, that absolute princes resist this. Nevertheless, these very ones profess to be in the best sense Christian princes. For this, however, they must become a purely spiritual power, as the Christian is subject only to spirit. God is spirit. The purely spiritual power is consistently represented only by the constitutional prince, he who, without any personal significance, stands there spiritualized to the degree that he can rank as a sheer, uncanny spirit, as an idea. The constitutional king is a truly Christian king, the genuine, consistent carrying out of the Christian principle. In the constitutional monarchy, individual dominion, that is, a real ruler that wills, has found its end. Here, therefore, individual liberty prevails, independence of every individual dictator, of every one who could dictate to me with a tel est notre plaisir. It is the completed Christian state life, a spiritualized life. The behavior of the commonality is liberal through and through. Every personal invasion of another sphere revolts the civic sense. If the citizen sees that one is dependent on the humour, the pleasure, the will of a man as individual, that is, as not 
as authorized by a higher power, at once he brings his liberalism to the front and shrieks about arbitrariness. In fine, the citizen asserts his freedom from what is called orders, ordinance. No one has any business to give me orders. Orders carries the idea that what I am to do is another man's will, while law does not express the personal authority of another. The liberty of the commonality is liberty or independence from the will of another person, so-called personal or individual liberty. For being personally free means being only so free that no other person can dispose of mine, or that what I may or may not do does not depend on the personal decree of another. The liberty of the press, for example, is such a liberty of liberalism, liberalism fighting only against the coercion of the censorship as that of personal wilfulness, but otherwise showing itself extremely inclined and willing to tyrannize over the press by press laws, that is, the civic liberals want liberty of writing for themselves, for, as they are law-abiding, their writings will not bring them under the law. Only liberal matter, that is, only lawful matter, is to be allowed to be printed, otherwise the press laws threaten press penalties. If one sees personal liberty assured, one does not notice at all how, if a new issue happens to arise, the most glaring unfreedom becomes dominant. For one is rid of orders, indeed, and no one has any business to give his orders, but one has become so much the more submissive to the law. One is enthralled now in due legal form. In the citizen-state there are only free people, who are compelled to thousands of things, for example, to deference, to a confession of faith, etc. But what does that amount to? Why, it is only the state, the law, not any man that compels them. What does the commonality mean by inveighing against every personal order, that is, every order not founded on the cause, on reason? It is simply fighting in the interest of the cause, footnote, sache, which commonly means thing, and footnote, against the dominion of persons. But the mind's cause is the rational, good, lawful, etc. That is the good cause. The commonality wants an impersonal ruler, Furthermore, if the principle is this, that only the cause is to rule man, to wit, the cause of morality, the cause of legality, etc., then no personal balking of one by the other may be authorized either, as formerly, for example, the commoner was balked of the aristocratic offices, the aristocrat of common mechanical trades, etc. Free competition must exist. Only through the thing, footnote, sache, and footnote, can one bark another, for example, the rich man barking the impecunious man by money, a thing, not as a person. Henceforth only one lordship, the lordship of the state, is admitted. Personally, no one is any longer lord of another. Even at birth the children belong to the state, and to the parents only in the name of the state, which, for example, does not allow infanticide, demands their baptism, etc., but all the state's children, furthermore, are of quite equal account in its eyes, civic or political equality, and they may see to it themselves how they get along with each other, they may compete. Free competition means nothing else than that every one can present himself, assert himself, fight against another. Of course, the feudal party set itself against this, as its existence depended on an absence of competition. 
the contests in the time of the Restoration in France had no other substance than this, that the bourgeoisie was struggling for free competition, and the feudalists were seeking to bring back the guild system. Now free competition has won, and against the guild system it had to win. See below for the further discussion. If the revolution ended in a reaction, this only showed what the revolution really was. For every effort arrives at reaction when it comes to discrete reflection, and storms forward in the original action only so long as it is an intoxication, an indiscretion. Discretion will always be the cue of the reaction, because discretion sets limits and liberates what was really wanted, that is, the principle, from the initial unbridledness and unrestrainedness. Wild young fellows, bumptious students, who set aside all considerations, are really Philistines, since with them, as with the latter, considerations form the substance of their conduct, only that as swaggerers they are mutinous against considerations, and in negative relations to them, but as Philistines, later, they give themselves up to considerations, and have positive relations to them. In both cases, all their doing and thinking turns upon considerations. But the Philistine is reactionary in relation to the student. He is the wild fellow come to discreet reflection, as the latter is the unreflecting Philistine. Daily experience confirms the truth of this transformation, and shows how the swaggerers turn to Philistines in turning grey. So, too, the so-called reaction in Germany gives proof that it was only the discreet continuation of the warlike jubilation of liberty. The revolution was not directed against the established, but against the establishment in question, against a particular establishment. It did away with this ruler, not with the ruler. On the contrary, the French were ruled most inexorably. It killed the old vicious rulers, but wanted to confer on the virtuous ones a securely established position, that is, it simply set virtue in the place of vice. Vice and virtue, again, are on their part distinguished from each other only as a wild young fellow from a Philistine, etc. To this day the revolutionary principle has gone no farther than to assail only one or another particular establishment, that is, be reformatory. Much as may be improved, strongly as discreet progress may be adhered to, always there is only a new master set in the old one's place, and the overturning is a building up. We are still at the distinction of the young Philistine from the old one. The revolution began in bourgeois fashion with the uprising of the third estate, the middle class. In bourgeois fashion it dries away. It was not the individual man, and he alone is man, that became free, but the citizen, the citoyen, the political man, who for that very reason is not man, but a specimen of the human species, and more particularly, a specimen of the species citizen, a free citizen. In the revolution it was not the individual who acted so as to affect the world's history, but a people. The nation, the sovereign nation, wanted to affect everything. A fancied I, an idea, for example the nation, is, appears, acting. The individuals contribute themselves as tools of this idea, and act as citizens. The commonality has its power, and at the same time its limits, in the fundamental law of the state, in a charter, in a legitimate or just prince, who himself is guided and rules according to rational laws, 
in short, in legality. Footnote, legitimate or righteous, German rechtlich, just, gerecht, and footnote. The period of the bourgeoisie is ruled by the British spirit of legality. An assembly of provincial estates, for example, is ever recalling that its authorization goes only so and so far, and that it is called at all only through favour, and can be thrown out again through disfavour. It is always reminding itself of its vocation. It is certainly not to be denied that my father begot me, but now that I am once begotten, surely his purposes in begetting do not concern me a bit, and whatever he may have called me to do, I do what I myself will. Therefore, even a called assembly of estates, the French assembly in the beginning of the revolution, recognized quite rightly that it was independent of the caller. It existed, and would have been stupid if it did not avail itself of the right of existence, but fancied itself dependent as on a father. The called one no longer has to ask, what did the caller want when he created me? But what do I want after I have once followed the call? Not the caller, not the constituents, not the charter according to which their meeting was called out. Nothing will be to him a sacred, inviolable power. He is authorized for everything that is in his power. He will know no restrictive authorization, will not want to be loyal. This, if any such thing could be expected from chambers at all, would give a completely egoistic chamber, severed from all navel-string and without consideration. But chambers are always devout, and therefore one cannot be surprised if so much half-way or undecided, that is, hypocritical, egoism parades in them. The members of the estates are to remain within the limits that are traced for them by the charter, by the king's will, etc. If they will not or cannot do that, then they are to step out, what dutiful man could act otherwise, could put himself, his conviction, and his will as the first thing? Who could be so immoral as to want to assert himself, even if the body corporate and everything should go to ruin over it? People keep carefully within the limits of their authorization. Of course, one must remain within the limits of his power anyhow, because no one can do more than he can. My power, or, if it be so, powerlessness, be my sole limit— but authorizations only restraining precepts? Should I profess this all-supposive view? No, I am a law-abiding citizen. The commonality professes a morality which is most closely connected with its essence. The first demand of this morality is to the effect that one should carry on a solid business, an honorable trade, lead a moral life. Immoral to it is the sharper, the demi-rep, the thief, robber, and murderer, the gamester, the penniless man without a situation, the frivolous man. The doughty commoner designates the feeling against these immoral people as his deepest indignation. All these lack settlement, the solid quality of business, a solid, seemly life, a fixed income, etc. In short, they belong because their existence does not rest on a secure basis to the dangerous individuals or isolated persons, to the dangerous proletariat. They are individual bowlers, who offer no guarantee, and have nothing to lose, and so nothing to risk. The forming of family ties, for example, binds a man. He who is bound furnishes security, can be taken hold of, not so the street-walker. The gamester stakes everything on the game, ruins himself and others, no guarantee, 
all who appeared to the commoner suspicious, hostile, and dangerous might be comprised under the name vagabonds. Every vagabondish way of living displeases him. For there are intellectual vagabonds, too, to whom the hereditary dwelling-place of their fathers seems too cramped and oppressive for them to be willing to satisfy themselves with a limited space any more. Instead of keeping within the limits of a temperate style of thinking, and taking as inviolable truth what furnishes comfort and tranquillity to thousands, they overlap all bounds of the traditional, and run wild with their impudent criticism and untamed mania for doubt, these extravagating vagabonds. They form the class of the unstable, restless, changeable, that is, of the proletariat, and, if they give voice to their unsettled nature, are called unruly fellows. Such a broad sense has the so-called proletariat, or pauperism. How much one would err if one believed the commonality to be desirous of doing away with poverty, pauperism, to the best of its ability. On the contrary, the good citizen helps himself with the incomparably comforting conviction that the fact is that the good things of fortune are unequally divided and will always remain so, according to God's wise decree. The poverty which surrounds him in every alley does not disturb the true commoner further than that at most he clears his account with it by throwing an alms, or finds work and food for an honest and serviceable fellow. But so much the more does he feel his quiet enjoyment clouded by innovating and discontented poverty, by those poor who no longer behave quietly and endure, but begin to run wild and become restless. Lock up the vagabond, thrust the breeder of unrest into the darkest dungeon, he wants to arouse dissatisfaction and incite people against existing institutions in the state. Stone him! Stone him! But from these identical discontented ones comes a reasoning somewhat as follows. It need not make any difference to the good citizens who protects them and their principles, whether an absolute king or a constitutional one, a republic, if only they are protected. And what is their principle? whose protector they always love, not that of labour, not that of birth either, but that of mediocrity, of the golden mean, a little birth and a little labour, that is, an interest-bearing possession. Possession is here the fixed, the given, inherited, birth. Interest-drawing is the exertion about it, labour, labouring capital, therefore. Only no immoderation, no ultra, no radicalism. Right of birth, certainly, but only hereditary possessions. Labour, certainly, yet little or none at all of one's own, but labour of capital, and of the subject labourers. If an age is imbued with an error, some always derive advantage from the error, while the rest have to suffer from it. In the Middle Ages the error was general among Christians that the Church must have all power, or the supreme lordship on earth. The hierarchs believed in this truth not less than the laymen, and both were spellbound in the like error. But by it the hierarchs had the advantage of power, the laymen had to suffer subjection. However, as the saying goes, one learns wisdom by suffering. And so the laymen at last learned wisdom, and no longer believed in the medieval truth. A like relation exists between the commonality and the labouring class. Commoner and labourer believe in the truth of money. They who do not possess it believe in it no less than those who possess it. The laymen, therefore, as well as the priests. Money governs the world, 
is the keynote of the civic epoch. A destitute aristocrat and a destitute labourer, as starvelings, amount to nothing so far as political consideration is concerned. Birth and labour do not do it, but money brings consideration. Footnote. Das Geld gibt Geltung. End footnote. The possessors rule, but the state trains up from the destitute its servants, to whom, in proportion as they are to rule, govern, in its name, it gives money, a salary. I receive everything from the state. Have I anything without the state's assent? What I have without this it takes from me as soon as it discovers the lack of a legal title. Do I not, therefore, have everything through its grace, its assent? On this alone, on the legal title, the commonality rests. The commoner is what he is through the protection of the state, through the state's grace. He would necessarily be afraid of losing everything if the state's power were broken. But how is it with him who has nothing to lose? How with the proletarian? As he has nothing to lose, he does not need the protection of the state for his nothing. He may gain, on the contrary, if that protection of the state is withdrawn from the protégé. Therefore, the non-possessor will regard the state as a power protecting the possessor, which privileges the latter, but does nothing for him, the non-possessor, but to suck his blood. The state is a commoner's state, is the estate of the commonality. It protects man not according to his labour, but according to his tractableness, loyalty to wit, according to whether the rights entrusted to him by the state are enjoyed and managed in accordance with the will, that is, laws, of the state. Under the regime of the commonality, the labourers always fall into the hands of the possessors, of those who have at their disposal some bit of the state domains, and everything possessable in state domain belongs to the state, and is only a fief of the individual. Especially money and land, of the capitalist, therefore, the labourer cannot realise on his labour to the extent of the value that it has for the consumer. Labour is badly paid. The capitalist has the greatest profit from it. Well paid, and more than well paid, are only the labours of those who heighten the splendour and dominion of the state, the labours of high state servants. The state pays well that its good citizens, the possessors, may be able to pay badly without danger. It secures to itself, by good payment, its servants, out of whom it forms a protecting power, a police. Open brackets. To the police belong soldiers, officials of all kinds, for example, those of justice, education, etc. In short, the whole machinery of the state. Close brackets. For the good citizens. And the good citizens gladly pay high tax rates to it in order to pay so much lower rates to their labourers. But the class of labourers, because unprotected in what they essentially are, open brackets, for they do not enjoy the protection of the state as labourers, but as its subjects they have a share in the enjoyment of the police, a so-called protection of the law, close brackets, remains a power hostile to this state, this state of possessors, this citizen kingship. Its principle, labour, is not recognised as to its value. It is exploited a spoil of the possessors, the enemy. Footnote. Exploited is ausgebeutet. Spoil is kriegsbeute. End footnote. The labourers have the most enormous power in their hands, and, if they once became thoroughly conscious of it and used it, nothing would withstand them. 
they would only have to stop labour, regard the product of labour as theirs, and enjoy it. This is the sense of the labour disturbances, which show themselves here and there. The state rests on the slavery of labour. If labour becomes free, the state is lost. End of section 13